This podcast from Faith Bible Church in Reno, Nevada. Faith Bible Church is a Christ-centered Bible teaching ministry dedicated to bringing the good news of the gospel to the whole world. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And now for this week's message from Pastor Alan Battle. Today's scripture reading is from the book of Ecclesiastes, the fourth chapter, verses one through three. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. This is the word of God. So we're continuing with our look at the book of Ecclesiastes. The writer who calls himself the professor is doing a deep dive into the meaning of life. And he presents his findings from the perspective of a man who lives under the sun. That is, from the perspective of a of purely human perspective. And from that perspective, his conclusion has been repeated again and again. Vanity. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Life is pointless and meaningless. But occasionally he breaks out from that perspective and gives us a view from above the sun. A view that acknowledges the sovereign creator and our responsibility to him. So last week we saw that even though life appears to be a drudgery of repeated events, man was made for more than that. God has put eternity into our hearts. And man's heart will always long for the day that we see him face-to-face. This week, the professor gives us several contrasts under the sun, and we'll see that life can be pretty bad, but it can be better. This passage, the professor has returned to his pessimistic, cynical persona and gives us his views on death, oppression, work, loneliness, friendship, and leadership. And with each of these, he suggests a way that they could be better. But first, let me tell you about the 18th century Scottish poet Robert Burns. Burns wrote some beautiful poetry and is revered to this day as the Bard of Scotland. And we all know one of his poems because we hear it sung every year at New Year's. Should old acquaintance be forgot, 
and never brought to mind should old acquaintance be forgot and old lang syne that means long time since old lang syne it's it's nostalgia but he he wrote another poem a poem called man was made to mourn and it contains many of the sentiments of our passage today in ecclesiastes it tells the story of a young man who's walking along the bank of the river. He passes by a very old man who invites him to walk along with him so that they might mourn the miseries of man. Isn't that a nice invitation? <laughs> it's rather long, and I'm not going to read it all, but here's a few of the relevant lines, and I'll try my best Scottish brogue. I've seen yon weary winter sun twice forty times return, and every time has added proofs that man was made to mourn. Many sharp and numerous ills inwoven in our frame. More pointed still, we make ourselves regret, remorse, and shame. And man, whose heaven-erected face The smiles of love adorn. Man's inhumanity to man makes countless thousands mourn. And he ends with this. O death, the poor man's dearest friend, the kindness and the best. Welcome the hour, my aged limbs, that are laid with thee to rest. The great The wealthy fear thy blow, from pomp and pleasure torn. But oh, a blessed relief for those that weary laden mourn. So every year, this 80-year-old man, every year that he lived, he says he saw more evidence that man was made to mourn. He saw sickness. He saw the sinfulness of his own heart and of others. And he saw man's inhumanity to man, which made countless thousands mourn. And he, being a poor man, with little or no comforts in life, welcomed death. And death is where the professor begins today. Ecclesiastes 3.18 I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. And what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies another. They all have the same breath. The man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. This says that God is testing us by showing us that we're like animals. Is mankind different than animals? We all came from the dirt. We're all going back to it. But there are many in our world today who are preaching that message that man is just one of the animals. We're just more highly evolved. Some say that this planet would be better off if we would just all go away. In a book published this year 
a Cambridge academic, has proposed a radical new way to solve climate change. How? By letting humanity become extinct. <laughs> She's actually proposing this. Patricia McCormack. I, she might be Scottish. She's a professor of continental philosophy, and she just released her new book, The Humanist, the, the A-Human Manifesto. Not the Humanist Manifesto, but the A-Human. You know, that negates, put an A in front of it, something. So the Not-Human Manifesto. The book argues that due to the damage done to other living creatures on Earth, humans should start gradually phasing out reproduction. And in joyful, optimistic tones, she argues for a positive view for the future of the earth, a future without mankind. So how is God testing us with this question, whether man and animals are the same? I think the very act of contemplating the question proves that we are set apart from the animals. I mean, do animals sit around and think about whether they're like us? No. <laughs> and how ironic that people who believe that we're the same as animals have these high ideals and, and this self-sacrificial altruism. Um, <clears throat> that's completely missing in the animal world. There, it's eat or be eaten. The very fact that they care so much about the planet sets them apart from the animals. But the professor remains agnostic on this question. Verse 21, Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? Who knows? Isn't that the attitude of most lost souls? Most people don't think about the big questions of life the questions that the professor is forcing us to ask here. They don't do it because it's uncomfortable. So the man living under the sun usually just avoids the issue and gets on with his life. And here we have our first better. First part of verse 22 in chapter 3. So I saw that there is nothing better then a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Since we're going to die anyway, uh, we should just make the best of our situation. It's back to the you-only-go-around-once attitude. If there's nothing but death coming for us, why should we care about the suffering in the world? Why should I care about saving the planet? I mean, we're not going to know or care after we're dead. So the second part of that verse says, who can bring him to see what will be after him? Seems like a rhetorical question, doesn't it? Um, who can show us what comes after death? And the implicit answer is nobody. But I think this line is betraying the professor's true purpose. Uh, he wants to plant a seed of doubt. Not doubt about God, but doubt about meaninglessness. <clears throat> there might be someone who can inform us about the afterlife. Maybe there is something even better 
than enjoying life now. Now the professor turns to the topic of oppression. And this is one of the unbelieving world's biggest arguments against the existence of God. If God exists, why is there so much pain and suffering and evil in the world? And though the professor never questions God's existence, he does raise questions about his apparent absence or his apparent indifference. So verse 1, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are under the sun, done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. So here the professor is sitting in the seat of the nihilist, the one who believes that there's no meaning in the world. And this is really the only honest philosophy for those who reject God's existence, for those who reject a biblical worldview. I mean, some people try to laugh it off, right? Like Woody Allen. I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And then the the existentialist comes along and he believes the same thing that the nihilist does, that life is meaningless, that it's absurd, but then he chooses to make his own meaning. He sees the oppression in the world and he says, well, I'm going to fight against it. The nihilist just gives up. So, life is nothing but meaningless cruelty, says the professor, toward the weak by the strong. And then he concludes in verse 2 of chapter 4. And I thought the dead who are already dead are more fortunate. It's better than the living who are still alive. It's better to be dead than alive. Better off dead. And this is the same conclusion that the old man in Burns' poem came to. If all of life is suffering, if man's inhumanity to man is just the way things are, If there's nothing after this life, then death is better for the oppressed. Francis Schaeffer said that if there's no God and life has no meaning, then the most compassionate thing that you could do is to blow up the whole planet and just stop all this suffering. Put everybody out of their misery. But the professor, he takes this one step further He says in verse 3, Better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are under the sun. It's better to be dead. It's even better to never have been born. And you know, you don't have to be an atheist or an agnostic to feel like that. Remember Job. Job had a strong faith in God. Yet in the midst of his suffering, he wished the same thing. He says, says in Job 3, 3, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not see it, seek it, nor light shine upon it. So now the professor is leaving us in this utter darkness and despair, helplessness. And he moves on to his next subject subject of work he's already touched on work earlier in this book 
Um, he observed that we can still find some enjoyment in our work, even if all our labor is just going to be blown away like dust in the wind. That'd be a good song title, wouldn't it? Now, he uh, compares a workaholic with bad motives to a slacker who refuses to work at all. Verse 4, Then I saw all the toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. The first guy is motivated by envy. Competition is his idol. He wants to be better than his neighbor. But that doesn't work. It's a chasing after wind because he can never catch that goal. Uh, He might one-up his neighbor, but there's always going to be another neighbor who's better than him. The other guy is just a fool who doesn't even try. And he ends up starving himself to death. So what is better than those two approaches to work? Verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. I love the way he says that. A handful of quietness versus two handfuls of toil. New American Standard Bible translates the word for quietness as rest. And it comes from the same word used in the Ten Commandments when it says that God did his work in six days and then rested. The professor is saying, work enough to satisfy your needs and enjoy yourself, but don't bust your butt for something that you can never attain. But then what good is food? that you've worked for if you have no one to share it with. So next he tackles loneliness. Verse 7. Again I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. We don't know why this guy is alone. It's possible that his single-minded devotion to getting rich has just run everybody off. It reminded me of the George Eliot novel Silas Marner. It's about a miserly weaver in a small English village who doesn't have any friends and he does nothing but work. And then he comforts himself in the evening. Every evening, he hauls out his gold and he counts it. There's never enough for Silas Marner or the guy in our verse here. His eyes are never satisfied with riches. Yet he persists in this useless pursuit. He is so focused on his earnings that he never enjoys them. And he doesn't even have the foresight to realize that one day he's going to die and not have anybody to leave it to. The professor adds this comment at the end. It is an unhappy business. I like the old King James. It says, it is sore travail. 
In other words, the guy's miserable. And he doesn't even stop himself to think that there might be a better way. But once again, the professor is going to suggest a better way, and that way is companionship. Verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. You often hear this verse used in wedding ceremonies, but it applies to the whole range of human relationships. Here it says that it's better for two people to work together. There's something about collaboration that brings more out of people, more creativity, more innovation, more profit. And not only that, more satisfaction. People who work together as a team are not lonely people. And it's safer to have a companion. Verse 10, For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. I've fallen, and I can't get up. (laughs) I couldn't resist. (laughs) Anyway, that's true. Uh, There's comfort in numbers, and there's safety in numbers. Chapter 4, verse 11. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And a lot of people speculate that that third cord is the Lord. But lots of songs jump to mind when I think about this idea of friendship, of companionship, like Lean on Me by Bill Withers or Friends are Friends Forever, Michael W. Smith and Amy Grant, but especially this one by James Taylor. Uh, When you're down and troubled and you need a helping hand and nothing, nothing is going right, you just call on my name and you know wherever I am, I'll come running to see you again. Winter, spring, summer, or fall, all you have to do is call, and I'll be there, yes I will. You got a friend. It's better to have friends, isn't it? We need other people. I mean, try cuddling up with your money at night and see how warm that keeps you. But the warmth of real companionship can comfort us through all the ups and downs of life it can steel us against the disillusionment that threatens to overtake us when we see the oppression and the evil in this world and it can protect us from those who want to do us harm it's much better to have companions than to be alone and the professor ends with one last comparison It's better to have wise leaders. Here he recalls a situation in a kingdom that he knew of. It says in verse 13, Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. 
I saw all the living move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. So this young guy takes over from the old king. There's a couple of things that I glean from this. First, leaders can start out good, but over time they can become too proud and too sure of themselves and stop listening to those around them. And when that happens, the realm stagnates or declines. And you see this in nations and companies, and you see it, you see it in any kind of an organization, even the church. I mean, look at Venezuela or, or Lebanon today, or heck, California. I mean, they're all in trouble. And where's Kmart today? You know, and where's Blockbuster and Tower Records? And did you know that 4,000 churches close their doors every year in America? All of these institutions, leaders have held on to the old way of doing things that no, that no longer worked. When that happens, you have to have new blood or you die And the new leaders, they can come from the most unlikely of places. They can be young. uh, They can come out of poverty. uh, They can even come out of prison. But even though newer, wiser leadership is better than the entrenched older leadership, the professor still has a warning. He returns to his pessimistic refrain. Look at the second part of verse 16. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him, the young guy. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. The new young king might be hot now, but nobody's going to care in a hundred years. Leaders come and go and are soon forgotten. Just like everyone and everything else in this world. Now don't forget... He's been speaking from a human perspective. These are things that he's observed over his long years, and they're obvious truths. Whether God exists or cares, they're still true, but it's all vanity if you're looking from under the sun. So while some things are better than others under the sun, in the end, none of it matters unless we get a view from above the sun. You know, Robert Burns, unlike the pretended persona of our professor, was truly a man without the benefit of a perspective from above the sun. Burns was disillusioned by the suffering and oppression that he saw in life, man's inhumanity to man. And he rejected the answers available to him in the Scottish Reformed Church, and he was a vocal opponent of biblical faith. He was a heavy drinker. He had several affairs. And his life ended tragically at the age of 31, found dead on a freezing cold street after a night of heavy drinking. Perhaps if he had some strong companions, his story would have been different. He was an outsider in his community. He was accepted in the higher class circles, but he was never really one of them. 
He married twice, had lots of lovers, most of while he was married, but he never formed strong, lasting bonds with any of them. If only he had realized that Jesus could have been that strong companion. Jesus came to make outsiders into insiders. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 12. Remember that you, Christian, were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Whether we know it or not, we were all in the same boat as the pretended character of the professor. We were without hope, without God in the world. But God has made a way for us to return to him, a way of reconciliation. That plan was put into motion as soon as our first parents ate that fruit in the garden. And God chose the Jews to put in motion this plan. And through them, he became a man. And he lived a perfect life. And he substituted that life for ours on the cross. And after three days, he rose from the grave, proving that he is the very Son of God. So when we repent of our sins and ask for his forgiveness, he gives us the right to be called the children of God. And you can't get any better than that. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you provide the absolute best. That there's nothing better than knowing you being your child. Lord, help us to go out this week in confidence, knowing that you are our companion, that you are our protector. And Lord, that through you, we can do all things. So we praise you and thank you, Lord. We praise you and thank you that we can just have this peace We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the preaching of God's Word from Faith Bible Church in Reno, Nevada. We hope that it has been an encouragement to you and that the Word of God will fill your hearts and minds as you walk through this world. If you have been blessed by this ministry and would like to make a small donation to help defray the cost of this podcast, Just click on the green Support Us button at the top of the webpage. Thank you.